0: This is Inside the New York Times Book Review. I'm Pamela Paul. Can a career of writing about feminism and womanhood prepare you for your father telling you, in his 70s, that he's become a woman? Susan Faludi is here to talk about her new memoir, in the dark room,
1: My father had kind of uh, driven a Trojan horse into my political and professional domain and to ignore that would be dishonest.
0: We know William Tecumseh Sherman as the man who both marched to the sea and burned Atlanta, but a new biography challenges the idea of Sherman as the father of scorched earth combat. James Lee McDonough is here to talk about his new biography of William Tecumseh Sherman.
2: In spite of uh, the fact that Sherman's name, of course, still conjures up these images of tremendous destruction, still, he felt that the Union had to be preserved above all else.
0: We'll also talk literary news and what we and other people are reading this week. And lastly, we'll hear a word from you, our listeners, about the summer books you've read and have never forgotten. The New York Times wants to hear your thoughts on podcasts, this one, and any others you listen to. If you've got a few spare minutes, check out our survey online. Go to nytimes.com slash bookreviewsurvey, and thank you. Not many people can feel prepared for the news that their father has decided to become a woman. Author Susan Faludi wasn't either, even though she's probably best known for writing about gender and women herself. You probably know her name as the author of Backlash, The Undeclared War Against American Women, which was a huge bestseller when it came out in 1991. But her new memoir is about one particular man and woman, her father. Susan, thank you so much for being here.
1: Hello. Congratulations. Thank you.
0: Tell us what this new book is about, because it's very different from your previous books.
1: Yes. Well, uh, it all started 12 years ago when my... Father, who I had been estranged from for a quarter century, um, sent me an email saying that at the age of 76, she had flown to Thailand to get sex reassignment surgery. Uh, And this, needless to say, was a surprise on many levels, in particular because the reason we had been estranged was that my father was as She herself conceded a pretty aggressive autocratic, um, as she put it, macho man Mm -hmm. um, when I was growing up, uh, and even violent at times, as I relate in the book, uh, which was the cause for our our estrangement. So after I got that email in 2004, um, we talked on the phone, and my father asked or dared me to uh, write, uh, as she put it, write my story. So I jumped on a plane to Hungary, which is where, just to make things more complicated, (laughs) my father was living because in 1990, she returned to Hungary, the place where she had grown up.
0: When she told you, your father, when she asked you to write her story, did she think that this would be a book and did you think it would be a book or were you thinking just writing it down
1: well, she was thinking of a book, mm-hmm. and you know, I think she was also thinking back to uh, the book I wrote on masculinity, Stift, which was when was that, 1999. And while we were pretty estranged, I would, you know, from t- time to time send her things like my book. Mm-hmm. So, so I think she had that in mind. Yeah, no, she was definitely thinking of a book, and we from the beginning um, had a you know a tape recorder out and I had my notebook and my list of questions. Uh, whether I actually was going to write this uh, was always kind of a question mark in my mind um, it I think it functioned as a way for us to reconnect, but my father very much wanted this book to come out and um, you know and I went back and forth there were many times I put it in a drawer and then took it out again and I think ultimately i've felt I couldn't really go forward in continuing to write about gender issues, which I've written about my whole life, without admitting to my own experience. I had to grapple with what was in my backyard.
0: Was that scary?
1: Yes. I mean, I stick to public and political issues and don't get into personal stuff much at all. But in this case, I felt that my father had kind of uh, driven a Trojan horse into my political and professional domain, and to ignore that would, and, and to not examine my own experience would be dishonest.
0: It's funny, I was just reading last night a commencement speech that Noah Afron gave to the 1996 class at Wellesley, um, in which she urged the graduates to make politics personal, to continue to force it, it into the personal realm, and to take it personally. So, this is kind of that idea in a way turned, turned into a book. Did you have concern writing about it? I mean, your father died last year. Did she want it to be published while it, she was alive?
1: I think she would have wanted it to be published while she was alive, but it was a, it was a concern to me um, on a number of levels. I mean, mainly for her safety. I mean, she lived in, in Hungary, in Budapest, until she died. Hungary is not exactly the most trans-friendly, so um, I had concerns for her security. You know, as I said to her, this is this is a kind of warts and all <laughs> treatment, and there are things in this book that you may not like. And she felt, no, 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 go ahead. That um, she, I think, more than anything, she wanted to be perceived, and um, chose me to do the perceiving.
0: Did she read it? Any of it?
1: It's funny. I when I. You know, finished uh, the draft that I thought would actually be book worthy. Um, I told her and um, said that I was sending it to my publisher, and and she said, "Oh, that's fantastic!" Or in her wonderful Hungarian with the drawn out vowels, it's fantastic. (laughs) You know, she didn't express any interest in looking at it at that point. Maybe she would have down the road, but then she became ill. after that, then we were sort of focused on dealing with it with her illness. Although, even when she was in the hospital, she was telling people there, Oh, my daughter's coming out with a book about me.
0: Was it f- freeing in a certain way then, sort of not to have her read it, but to be able to write it in? exactly the way that you wanted to write it, sort of not worrying about her perceptions? Or were you writing it that way anyway?
1: What's in the book is what I wrote before she died, Mm -hmm. with one exception of there's, you know, a a coda at the end of the book where I talk about uh, where I talk about her death. So, no, I mean, you know, in, in many ways, I wrote it as much for her as about her.
0: I'm not going into, I haven't gone into uh, much detail about your father's story. It is so fascinating. Tell us a little bit about who your father was, particularly his, his childhood. You mentioned he grew up in Hungary.
1: Yes, yeah. she was born um, in Budapest, uh, Jewish. Originally, my father's name was Ishvan Friedman. Uh, And my uh, grandparents were, uh, you know, wealthy bourgeois Jews. Um, My father was an only child and had this very privileged life until World War II when my father became basically an urchin on the street uh, trying to pass as a Christian uh, with false identity papers and uh, a stolen fascist armband. And large numbers of my family, um, as was the case with every Jewish family in Hungary, uh, perished in the Holocaust.
0: How did he get there? I mean, how did he get to that? How was he able to escape?
1: Well, Hungary has a complicated uh, history um, in World War II. The deportations came late in the uh, spring and summer of 1944, Close to half a million Jews were from Hungary, were deported to Auschwitz and other extermination camps. Um, but the the ruling um, figure, the regent of Hungary, stopped the deportations at Budapest. Uh, so there was a period where um, Jews who lived in Budapest were, um, you know, relatively safe, or at least weren't. Um, weren't deported in that systematic way but by the fall and winter of uh, 1944 when um, a new uh, uh, fascist uh, party came to power um, it all started up again and there were thousands of Jews who were shot into the Danube in Budapest and tens of thousands of others who were uh, sent on death marches But there were a fair number of Jews who were able to survive in Budapest as a result.
0: How did he get from the streets of Budapest to America married to your mother?
1: Well, that was a long and uh, interesting um, journey, which was also part of my book. Uh, my father had a lifelong love of photography. Um, actually, my father really wanted to be a filmmaker, but um, my father became a high-end commercial photographic developer. Ultimately, in New York, my father's specialty was altering images, or what she referred to as trick photography, you know, before the days of Photoshop, and she worked on a a lot of rather prominent fashion uh, photographers like Richard Avedon, Scafullo, Irving Penn, Bert Stern. In Budapest, actually, my father received uh, a movie camera for the occasion of my father's bar mitzvah. And so then, right after the war, she uh, joined this uh, film club, a sort of youth film club, and then proposed to the Hungarian government that she and two friends be sent to Denmark to collect films that could be aired in Hungary because a lot of the film stock had been destroyed in the war. So that's how my father got to Denmark to Copenhagen and then in Copenhagen my father decided um along with two these two friends that they wanted to go to Brazil and become filmmakers there and my father actually altered you know basically forged a visa and um tricked the customs officers into um letting them board a ship to to Rio in the mid fifties, my father got a legal visa to come to the united States came to new york nineteen fifty four and began a family and uh, work in photography in Manhattan.
0: Did you feel like you reconciled with her in the end?
1: Yes, and no, in that you know my father was a really complicated, very difficult person, and, um, you know, it's not like we went into the sunset um, with hearts and flowers. We had a relationship that was contentious, Um, but I think we sorted a lot out, and we came to an understanding of each other, and at one point, my father did indeed apologize to me for one of the Violent incidents in my childhood that was directed at me personally, and I took in I took that as more as, as intended as a global apology for mm-hmm. the larger pain he he as he <laughs> inflicted on my family in those years.
0: Do you have kind of one goal that you or thing that you want people to come away with, or to question or think about in reading the book?
1: Well, I. I would like people to come away with identity um, as much as we want to think of identity as singular and stable, that identity is multiple and fluid, uh, and that you can't isolate one aspect of oneself. And that identity, the term identity, which gets thrown around a lot and to the point where it Seems almost a contentless Mm -hmm. catchphrase. Identity, it can be liberating or it can be oppressive. And it's, you know, in the case of LGBT rights, women's rights, it can be, you know, a voyage into real self awareness and discovery. But it can be destructive and um, treacherous when identity. Gets used as a substitute for self introspection, for um, an acknowledgement of psychological complexity, more in the case of nations, uh, for a reckoning with the past and confronting, you know, really hard circumstances in society and, you know, economic life. We we are witness right now to so many examples of how a kind of nationalistic or group identity has been used in ways that are devastating and tragic. I would point to the the shootings in Orlando as a classic example of that.
0: So you've written a memoir, but it actually does does turn out to be very uh, timely, very um, prescient, very relevant to. A lot of things that are going on right now, both in this country and internationally. Um, Susan, thank you so much. Thank you so much. The book, again, is called In the Dark Room by Susan Faludi, and it's reviewed this week on our cover by Michelle Goldberg. Alexander Alter is here with news from the book world. Hi, Alexander. Hi,
3: Pamela. So we're going to talk about bookstores. There's some interesting things happening with brick-and-mortar bookstores. The latest news this week is that Amazon is planning to open its third store called Amazon Books in Portland. It already has a store in Seattle and San Diego is opening. So this is its third bookstore. And it's indicated that it plans to really expand into brick-and-mortar, um, which you know many people thought... Was a strange move for an online retail company. But if you look at the overall book selling landscape, you're really seeing a resurgence of physical bookstores. Bookstore sales were up almost 10% in April, according to the Census Bureau. That's the latest month that they tracked. And bookstore sales have risen every month this year so far compared to 2015. And they're growing faster than the overall retail market. So that's pretty interesting. That's good to hear,
0: too, because there have not been a huge number of breakout books so far this spring.
3: Exactly. It's funny. I mean, often when you see bookstore sales going up, there's a Fifty Shades of Grey or a Harry Potter or something that people are flocking to the stores to get. And there has not been a giant blockbuster this year. One thing people say is helping bookstores is the coloring book trend, which continues to to grow. I think there were something like 12 million coloring books sold last year um, compared to just a few million or a million even the year before. So that is something that you get, you know, in a store, I mean, you could buy it online, but that's a very much a physical phenomenon. And um, the other kind of encouraging thing we're seeing with booksellers is just the growth of independent stores. Of course, there are stores closing here and there, and that's going to continue. But overall, the, the ranks of independent booksellers have grown. The American Booksellers Association has grown for the seventh consecutive year, and their core membership increased to 1,775, which was 63% higher than it was the previous year.
0: You know, it's interesting. I was reading a story yesterday about Daunt and what he did when he took over... the Waterstones chain in the UK and turned it around. And the story said that um, one of the things that he did was kind of stop allowing publishers to dictate placement within the stores and really tailoring each of Waterstones' many bookstores in the UK to that individual market, to That's that town, so to that region. And it sounds like you know that that what's happening over there is what's happening over here, and that that kind of huge. Big box homogenization that used to be right. uh, prevalent in bookstores is, you know, isn't working as well. And that what works much better is having something, you know, very tailored to the local population. And even Amazon, I think, from what I hear about the new stores, is is being very is, is smart about leveraging their strengths um, in a way that other retailers can't do. So that's very specific to the store by showcasing, you know, books that got the most five-star reviews or books that were the most recommended or, um, you know, using all of that data that they have um, to do something different.
3: I think that's a really interesting point. I think, you know, you've seen Barnes & Noble struggling so much. And one of the things that I think might turn off some consumers is just walking to the store and seeing the same things at the very front of the store in every location. I mean, there's some variation, but, but you're right. There was this kind of push in the 90s to these big box stores, and they were very homogenous, and you always knew what you would see. And I think the reason you know a lot of people are like browsing in a in a smaller independent store is the element of surprise, and the sort of serendipity of happening upon something that you didn't know you were interested in, and right. picking it up and falling in love and buying it, and you know recommending it to a friend. There's this sense of discovery.
0: Yeah, it's like when you go to Powell's if you're not from Portland. You want to see what they're reading in Portland, and you want to see what their local books are and who the local authors are, and just get a sense of you know the people who work in that store. So when you go to that store in Portland, you want to get something different than you would from the bookstore around the corner.
3: Exactly. And in other happy bookstore news, the cat from Community Bookstore went missing for a couple of days. But after some help on social media, the cat has returned. The and cat is, is back. A grumpy as back. ever. <laughs> yes, that is Park of Community Bookstore. And I'm, a, I'm very fond of that cat. So I'm happy to hear it. Well,
0: always happy for good cat slash bookstore news. So thanks, Alexandra. Thanks, Pamela. William Tecumseh Sherman, the Union general who marched to the sea and burned Atlanta, was afraid that history would pass him by. That's just one of the many revelations about Sherman in James Lee McDonough's new biography, William Tecumseh Sherman, In the Service of My Country, A Life. James, thank you so much for being here. Hello. So this is not the first biography of William Tecumseh Sherman. There have been many before. What made you decide to write the book?
2: I um, have long found... Um, General Sherman, a fascinating character. In fact, I think the most fascinating high-ranking officer on his side in the Civil War. And I particularly wanted to deal in more detail and with some different interpretations than uh, previous biographers. Thus, some years ago, began collecting the materials with which ultimately to write the biography. And then during the last Six to seven years, um, that has been my absolute priority.
0: What did earlier books not tell us about Sherman?
2: For example, I thought that some aspects of the Atlanta campaign were either passed over very quickly or minimized. Also, I think the battle at Shiloh was very significant in Mm -hmm. Sherman's rise I don't think he has previously gotten the credit that he deserves for that battle. And uh, I wrote a book about the Battle of Shiloh uh, back in the early 70s. And in looking over that battle again, uh, I felt like that that I did not give him the credit that he deserved.
0: Many people, when they think of William Tecumseh Sherman, think immediately of Sherman's march. But obviously there's a lot they don't know about him. They don't know that he was a theater buff and that he was ultimately an Upper West Sider. Let's start at the beginning. Where and when was he born?
2: Uh, He was born in 1820 in uh, Lancaster, Ohio, just uh, east of um, Columbus.
0: And what was his early life like?
2: Well, when he was nine years old, his father died uh, unexpectedly, and um, he was from a large family, and uh, his mother was not able to take care of all the children. Consequently, he went to the home of uh, Thomas and Maria Ewing, and uh, they became, in effect, his foster parents. In some ways, this proved to be very good for Sherman, because uh, Mr. Ewing was a wealthy man. He was uh, politically connected. Uh, he presented Sherman with some opportunities that he probably would never have had otherwise. And his
0: foster father was a senator, U.S. Senator from Ohio.
2: That's right. Yes, he was. And uh, he also was, uh, for a time, uh, Secretary of the Treasury. He was uh, a very um, well known, well read. Well-respected man.
0: But Sherman himself was not attracted to politics. What did he... (laughs) I guess that's putting it mildly.
2: Right. (laughs) At least from the time that he finished West Point, which was in 1840 when he was 20 years old, he uh, basically had a disdain for politics. I might give you one uh, example shortly after that. In 1844, when his younger brother John three years younger than Tecumseh, was um, uh, speaking on behalf of Henry Clay's campaign for the presidency. Uh, When Sherman found out about it, he said to John, what the devil are you doing? He said, I thought you were more decent than that. His attitude about politics was well fixed from that time on. And uh, even when he knew later that he could probably be the Republican nominee for the presidency and uh, very possibly could win the presidency. Uh, he still did not change his mind. He was very serious, but he had no interest in politics. He
0: obviously was a tremendous leader, but in certain ways, he wasn't exactly ambitious. He was one of the few people who sort of didn't jump to be a leader in the Union Army under Lincoln, but actually asked Lincoln not to appoint him to a position of leadership. Why was that?
2: Well, that's a good question, and I think it stems from the fact that he had had no military experience at that point, though he'd spent a number of years in the Army, other than uh, fighting against the Seminole Indians in a guerrilla type of warfare in, um, in Florida. He was deeply disappointed that in the Mexican War, he was not able to see combat. At the beginning of the Civil War, he felt that he needed some experience. Mm-hmm. And he did not want to be thrust into a position of leadership until, uh, until like he um, told his wife, I do not want to lead until I can see the way more clearly.
0: And during the war, he was not optimistic. He was depressed and, you say, even suicidal at one point.
2: Yes. I think this is a very complex situation that Uh, finally got hold of him and led to mental and physical exhaustion in the fall of 1861. First of all, while he had wanted to get back into the Army, he did not want to fight against the South. He lived in the South for uh, many years, Florida, South Carolina, Louisiana, visited other southern states. He liked the South. He had some of his closest friends in the South. And so it really disturbed him to think that he'd be fighting against uh, these people. And then when the war did begin, he felt he had no way of staying out of it, I uh, was being encouraged to get back in it. But then he thought the Union, the authorities in Washington, did not fully appreciate what a horrendous thing this was going to be. As he said upon one occasion, it probably will take an entire generation of men he was not able to adjust easily to all of this carnage and then when and then thinking that the union's not taking it seriously enough he he just became extremely exhausted and depressed and Cincinnati commercial in december 1861 called him insane of course it was uh, many of the charges on which this were based were uh, exaggerated or out-and-out misrepresentations.
0: How does he get from there to Sherman's march?
2: Well, fortunately, he was able to bounce back from all this. I think at the Battle of Shiloh, although he was surprised by the Confederate attack, he was able, once the fight was underway, to realize that he had the ability in battle to remain cool, to think quickly and decisively, that he could really lead men. That was a major factor in um, giving him confidence. And then in the Vicksburg campaign, that confidence continued to grow. And finally, getting to the march, of course, after the Atlanta campaign, and he has taken Atlanta by the early September 1864, he still could see no end to the war, the um, casualties, casualties. Uh, were just, of course, immense and uh, even worse for the South with its much smaller manpower pool than for the North, Um, and certainly they were horrible enough for the North. He became convinced that no matter how horrendous the casualties might be, that was not going to end the war. The South showed no signs of still of giving in, and so he became convinced that the best way was take the war home, uh, destroy the base of the Confederate war effort, and in hitting at that base, he would also hit civilian morale, and through civilian morale, he would be hitting at soldier morale. In fact, this reminds me, if I can quote it uh, correctly, or at least very closely, he said at one point, the simple fact that a man's home has been visited by an enemy, makes a soldier in Lee's army or in Johnston's army very, very anxious to get home and take care of his family and his property. Sherman realized that that was the way that he could hit hardest at the morale, civilian and military, of the confederacy. I think two
0: of the most striking things that um you pointed out about the Sherman's march is that one out of 60,000 soldiers only 103 were killed in combat during the uh, Atlanta to the Atlantic campaign. And then two, your point about the Sherman's march that he didn't go and burn everything, he only burned the sort of the bigger, wealthier backers of the confederacy that were adamant on continuing to fight back.
2: Yes, that's, that's true. Now, inevitably, you can't control all of the soldiers. And consequently, there was a lot of damage, uh, peripheral damage, if I might use that term, maybe it's not strong enough, but um, to non-targeted areas. But he basically was trying, as you say, to hit at the more wealthy uh, leaders of the southern rebellion, as well as then destroying, of course, the war base.
0: What's the one thing you want readers to come away from this book knowing about Sherman?
2: I guess I would like them to come away seeing him as a man who really loved his country and who um, had a great sense, a, a deep sense of honor, really tried to live honestly, did not want initially to fight the South, in spite of uh, the fact that Sherman's name, of course, still conjures up these images of tremendous destruction. Still, he felt that the Union had to be preserved above all else. Consequently, then, that's how I would like and hope that readers would see him
0: Obviously, a lot more to learn about William Tecumseh Sherman in the book, uh, which is called, again, William Tecumseh Sherman in the Service of My Country, A Life by James Lee McDonough. James, thank you so much.
2: Yes, you're very welcome. Thank All you.
0: right. John Williams joins us now. Hi, John. Hey, Pamela. So you're not going to talk about you. You're going to give us some of what our listeners are uh, talking about.
4: Yeah, we reached out to all of our listeners, and you responded in great numbers with voice memos describing some of your most memorable reading experiences over summers in your past.
0: Um, All right, let's hear from our first listener.
5: Hi, my name is Dustin Farron. I live out here in beautiful western Montana. The book I read last summer that stuck with me is called As I Lay Dying by one William Faulkner. I read this book clandestinely at work in the shade of a giant cottonwood tree when there was no work left to do. And uh, the thing that stuck with me most about this novel was the theme of just complete,
4: utter unfairness.
0: All right, John, have you read As I Lay Dying?
4: I haven't, actually. You know, I'm pretty unread in Faulkner. I read a couple of things in school.
0: I remember one summer reading Light in August, which I I thought that I very stealthily snuck off my parents' bookshelf. Um, And it was a very old copy. And on the jacket, it said, this is about a man who doesn't know if he is black or white. And that felt to me at the time so incredibly subversive that I thought, you know, I had to sneak it.
4: I think Light in August is one of the ones I read in school, actually, although my memory of it is not that great. But I'm mostly envious of just being in Western Montana and reading Under a Giant Cottonwood Tree.
0: I know, really. All right, let's hear from our next
4: listener.
3: Hi, my name is Winona Wagner. I am a redhead who lives in Sonoma, California, and one summer when I was 20, I read Still Life with Woodpecker by Tom Robbins as I was traveling through Spain, and it was just a fabulous opening into vice, uh, both through the book and through my travels, Um, and every redhead needs to read Still Life with Woodpecker. Thanks.
0: John, I think you're uh, they're, they're getting you a little bit there. You've got some red hair.
4: That's actually a, a matter of great debate among my friends, whether i have red or blonde hair. But Winona, um, I think, opens the door to a lot of questions mentioning Vice, but um, it sounds like she had a good time in Spain. I also read Still Love with the Woodpecker many years ago.
0: As all redheads should. Okay. As all redhead <laughs> should. You
4: have your marching orders, redheads. Our next listener.
5: This is James Penha in Jakarta, Indonesia. Thinking back almost 40 years to a first trip to Paris... And the pilgrimage to Shakespeare and Company, where my friend John and I both bought copies of Hemingway's Immovable Feast because, well, because we were in Paris.
0: Who didn't read *A movable Feast in France? I think you have to read it in Paris.
4: I do too. And I think a remarkable number of you called in with uh, stories involving international travel. So we have a very global reading crowd.
0: I you always remember what you read when you travel. It's true. Sometimes more than what you actually travel to see. Yes. All right, let's listen to one more.
4: My name is Alicia Peterson. I live in Imperial Beach. The book that I read is The Lady of the Camellias* by Alexander Dumas. I read this book on July 27, 1983. I was 16 years old, and I was living in Tulancingo, Mexico, while my mom was delivering my last and fifth sister, Elena. My dad was with the rest of my, my sisters. Every time that my mom screamed, I read loud it so I could block her screams. How can you beat that? That was a very intense one, I thought. Wow. Yeah, it's almost like a scene from a novel itself, a harrowing scene of a child trying to drown out the sounds of childbirth.
0: All right, we're really upping the ante here for listeners who want to send in their summer reading uh, memories. John, how do they do that? We
4: want to keep hearing from you. So if you know how to record a voice memo on your smartphone, simply do that and send it to us at podcasts at nytimes.com. And if you don't know how to do that, you can visit nytimes.com slash books and we walk you through the steps.
0: All right. Keep them coming. Thanks so much, John. Thanks, Pamela. My colleagues Pearl Siegel and Greg Coles join us now. Hi guys. Hi Pamela. Hi Pamela. All right. Let's talk about what other people are reading first and then we'll talk about ourselves.
5: Notable books on the fiction hardcover list this week. Um, Yaa Gassi's debut novel, which has gotten quite a lot of attention, it was reviewed on our cover by Isabel Wilkerson. It's called Homegoing. Uh, It's new at number 15 on the list. This is the book about the um, slave trade in West Africa. It opens in the 1700s and comes all the way up to the modern day, um, both in America and in Ghana, um, where the the look at the slave trade is centered. Um, And... Kind of looks at the reverberations of that trade on generations, um, both of Africans and of African-Americans. Uh, that book's new at number 15. There's actually a bunch of new titles on the um, hardcover fiction list this week. Maybe the the most notable other one is uh, up at number one. Stephen King is back. He concludes his Bill Hodges trilogy, which is uh, his detective series um, about a retired cop named Bill Hodges. And this book is called End of Watch. And that is new at number one.
0: What's going on with nonfiction?
5: Three new titles in nonfiction. Um, At number five, Chuck Klosterman, the cultural critic and essayist, has a a book called But What If We're Wrong? New at number five. It's uh, kind of a look at the current day cultural scene from the eyes of future historians, looking back at, at what's going on, how they might sum up this time. Uh, And then at number six, Mary Roach uh, has a new kind of pop science book called Grunt. It looks at the science of the military, um, what soldiers experience uh, out in the field. And down at number 14, another sort of uh, pop historical uh, thing uh, along the lines of the Chuck Klosterman, The Rise and Fall of Nations. Um, This is really uh, taking an economic look at um, culture and, and history is
0: not that very close to the title of that paul kennedy book back in the day was it like the rise and the fall of the great powers that was like yeah. one of the big bestsellers yeah. of this, the 1990s this is a similar
5: idea the author is ruchir sharma and that's new at number 14
0: all right so what are you guys reading parl getting over your uh, your writer's block or
6: your my reader's block off? um yeah well i'm still pregnant it's been about two years now and um, <laughs> <laughs> i'm still intensely pregnant And uh, if you've been listening, I've been trying to get out of this trap of just being obsessed with reading about these books because I know nothing and nothing seems to stick. So I just have to read the same books again and again. But I've gone back into the fold and I'm rereading a bunch of books. And I thought to recommend two books if uh, you're at all in the, you know, in my condition, um, be that pregnancy or just general amnesia for all sorts of things. One is a book called Expecting Better by Emily Oster who's an economist, and if you're at all like, data-minded and or anxious, this is a great book, because she just looks at um, where do all these prescriptions come from? Where do these injunctions come from? Why do you have to stay away from sushi? Why can't you drink? Why can't you do vast amounts of heroin? Well, some of them are more <laughs> obvious, but so she sort of like looks at where did these studies come from, um, and I mean, it's just interesting, the science of of, of You know, giving women advice during this time is interesting because you can't test on pregnant women. And a lot of the stuff like these studies are ancient. And the way that they've been misrepresented and misunderstood and passed on is really quite startling.
0: Uh, One of the most uh, fascinating stories I ever reported was for the Times Magazine about women who get cancer while pregnant. I I just realized you're looking at me like, don't say that. (laughs) Don't talk about that article. (laughs) So, okay, I will just... For John, very quickly.
6: Uh- <laughs> <laughs> I have one more book. What's your other more book. baby book? This is a book that I just read, and it was reviewed for us by Sarah Rule. It's called Little Labors by Rivka Galchin And it's this slender little meditation on the idea of the baby. So Galchen, uh, recently, not recently, I think like two years ago had a child, and she writes about what sort of having this child did to her marriage did to her creative process and she describes it sort of as you know you expect this baby this warm soft you know lovely little addition to the family but she describes it as like having a puma move into the house this force this sort of that splintered everything apart and it's it's really funny um she just describes about she describes uh, the baby in like literary imagination what having a baby in public does the way it triggers people um, yes. the sorts of bizarre things people feel the need to say to her or her baby um, and it's just it's it's really unsentimental it's really really funny um and uh yeah there's smart. a great
0: picture book uh that's coming out in september called king baby um that i recommend you look at uh, it puts everything into into perspective and the, the parents rules the higher that's <laughs> right it will make
5: so much sense to you oh in, God, in september right very soon <laughs> all right greg what about you Um, I'm in one of these reader's block lulls right now. I've been reading a a lot of political coverage, a lot of just magazine journalism. I have not been reading a lot of books. Um, But one book um, that I worked on our review of, um, it's an editor's choice this week uh, that I can heartily recommend, is uh, the new novel by Annie Prue. It's called Barkskins, and it is uh, probably her most ambitious book so far, certainly in terms of its scope. It takes place over generations, um, going all the way back to the settlement of of the New World. Um, It is a book about deforestation. um, And Sort of uh, like the Yagasi book, Homegoing, uh, that's on the bestseller list this week, it starts with two people, as that book does, and follows their generations down through the centuries. Um, both of Prue's uh, main characters, or, or progenitors, are um, indentured servants, and one runs away from their master and uh, becomes a lumber magnate and founds this company that just goes on um, to become, you know, a big industrial force, clear-cutting forests. The other uh, remains uh, an indentured servant and ends up marrying a Native woman, a Native American woman that strand of the story kind of follows racial issues and and Native issues uh, through the generations. And so um, it becomes very much a look at politics and the economy um, all through the window of deforestation. It's um, very ambitious, very impressive. Um, She kind of ties everything together, um, makes you look at uh, the environment in a a refreshing way. Um, Our reviewer, William Volman, um i i called it uh, you know a very important topic I, I think he was on the whole impressed with the book although m- maybe grudgingly as as william volman uh often can, is, <laughs> yeah, often <laughs> is. I, I think he he likes things reluctantly <laughs> um but reading between the lines i think he quite yeah, liked this book yeah. um although he had some issues with its prose um i, I did not I, I thought it was you know really a, a strong book
0: what are you reading i'm you know like greg reading a lot of journalism but in books so i'm continuing with the uh the Nora Ephron and um, actually the other day I was uh, in the elevator and bumped into Nora Ephron's son, uh, Jacob Bernstein, who is a reporter for the Times and mentioned that I was reading the book and he said um, we were talking about her early journalism and he said like that the essay to read is her um, profile of Helen Gurley Brown, mm-hmm. uh, which is what, what's next actually in the book. So I will read that tonight. But um, there are two new books also out Um
6: one out Green now, Brand. coming
0: out one coming out. Yes, about yeah. Helen Gurley Brown. Um, so that's uh, a little bit in the air. Oddly, I was going down the elevator to meet my mother for lunch, and uh, when I mentioned this, uh, when I saw her, she said, "That's so odd." I was just watching his documentary about his mother on um, that aired on HBO earlier this year. But the other little piece of journalism uh, that I read. Also in book form is from a book that um, inadvertently has become a kind of historical relic, which is the insurrection of the mind, the the New Republic, you know, 100-year celebration that, like, right now is... Crazy to look at because the afterward is like, you know, and many thanks to Chris Hughes who will take this <laughs> into, you know, I just, <laughs> heard, uh, I just
6: read that earlier this year. It's great, it is really it's great. From Virginia Woolf on, like, yes, it's pretty
0: but the one that I read that I that I just loved, loved, loved is uh, was by Jonathan Chait, um, who uh is now I, at I, I New saw York, you Magazine. I about this on Facebook, um, yes, <laughs> Twitter, but uh, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but but very close, um, and uh, he. He starts off this essay and he's like, I hate George W. Bush. There, I said it. And it just goes on and it's this, you know, really all out, unapologetic criticism of Bush. And he carries it perfectly through. And then at the end he says, there, um, that feels better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so I recommend reading that. That's actually, you can read that online too. So you, you don't even have to get the book, though I recommend getting the book too. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Thanks Pamela. Pamela. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com books. Our producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez, and you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul.